Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. We all know what a competitive weapon high quality is. It allows you, first of all, pricing power. And if you increase your price, that goes straight to the bottom line. It makes it easier for you to recruit and retain the best people because the best people want to work for a company that has a high quality product. Hi, this is Mark Devine and welcome to the Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it's like to be fearless through the lens of some of the most inspirational, courageous, and compassionate leaders around the world martial arts grandmasters, military leaders, SEALs, high-powered CEOs, and those who write books about their experiences, such as my guest today, David Dotson, who's on the faculty at the Stanford's uh, Graduate Business School. He guides students in tactical execution. Teaches one of the most sought-after courses at Stanford. The Economist listed his course as one of the three hottest courses, and he's the recipient of the MSX Teaching Excellence Award. His success in the classroom follows vast experience in the trenches, beginning at McKinsey and Company as a consultant, then as a serial entrepreneur, where he started and or acquired six different companies and ran them as CEO or executive chairman. Since then, he's served as a board member on more than 40 public and private companies and has been an active investor in over 150. Dave is a frequent commentator on CNBC and Fox News. He's been published in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Fortune Magazine, Forbes, CNN, Business Insider, Denver Post, and others. And we'll be talking today about his new book, The Manager's Handbook, How to Apply Those Lessons in Real Life, will be the focus of our conversation. David, thanks so much for joining me today. David, thanks so much for joining me on the Mark Divine Show. I'm super stoked to meet you. I appreciate your time today, sir. No, it's an honor to be on your show. I've followed some of your podcasts and your, um, your program, and I think it's fascinating what you're doing just to bring in the whole experience for the military into the business and corporate world. So I found it fascinating and I was thrilled to be on your show. Yeah, I appreciate that. I want to get into like the meat of your work and the book that you've recently come out with, The Manager's Handbook. But before that, I'm most interested in is like who you are, like where are you from? What were some of the driving forces in your life that kind of steered you in the direction that put you where you are today? I grew up in a really rural part of Colorado. The closest town to me had a population of 350 and everybody was divided between farmers or ranchers. And my dad was in the farm equipment business and he had a small manufacturing company that manufactured farm equipment. Being in an environment where most of the people are living off agriculture, whether it's farming or ranching, and my dad in the manufacturing sector gave me a, a love for being in business and a love for being a business person. But also just kind of this sense of work ethic that I think is, at least at the time, I thought was quite unique to people who live off the land. But then what happened, Mark, is that in my junior year in high school, so I was a couple of years from going off to college, two things happened that devastated my dad's business. And I mean devastated it. One was a spike in interest rates. And the second was change in federal policy, agriculture policy. And it effectively bankrupted my father. At one point, I mean, he had a pretty thriving business there. I left that experience 
wanting to be in business like my dad, and I thought he was a terrific business person, but not wanting to have my destiny in the hands of somebody else. I understood that there's external forces that are going to, you know, sometimes you got a little bit of a headwind, sometimes you got a little bit of a tailwind, but where external forces can really actually define whether you win or lose. The second was that when I went off to college, we didn't have any money because of the situation I just described. So I would take my classes in the morning and then I would borrow my roommate's car and I would drive down to San Jose. I was going to Stanford and I would work at a slaughterhouse. And I worked in the slaughterhouse because it paid a lot of money and I needed the money. And what I realized later, I didn't realize at the time, is that I needed to understand what it was like to have a job and not a particularly good job because you just need the money. And so that was probably the second thing that's really influenced my life. And then the third is I've had some terrific mentors along the way, most notably Irv Grossbeck, who wrote the introduction to the book, The Manager's Handbook. So I would say that those are sort of the three kind of forces that propelled me and, and, and how they all kind of came together is I wrote a book about management that is not about the internet or anything fancy. It's about basic skills that apply to anybody who's managing. But also there's a sort of democratization in my book, which is that I wanted to be in businesses where I was in control, which meant that success or failure really depended upon my ability to execute. And when I started on this three-year research journey to figure out why some people were just so much better at getting things done than others, it wasn't that they had x-ray vision or they could you know, see things that the rest of us couldn't see. It was that they were incredible executors. And the first like, big epiphany I had was Sam Walton, actually. In 1962, when he opened up that first store, he was literally surrounded by Kmart, JCPenney, Sears, and Target. And he annihilated them. He didn't invent anything, but he consistently out-executed him. And then I looked at people like Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs and so forth. And over and over again, I realized, wait a minute, what really happened here is they just out-executed their competitors. They didn't invent anything. Do you think in today's like incredibly interconnected world that any company can be safe from external shocks or external forces like you described? Oh, yeah, I really do. I mean, there are definitely companies that, that have big influences from government policy, for example. There are businesses in the healthcare sector that live and die on what happens in Washington, D.C., but for most businesses, that's not the case. And, and I don't mean to imply that if you have a lumberyard and interest rates go up, that might affect your business a little bit, but that's not what happened to my dad's business. My dad's business was devastated by a stroke of the pen, interest rates and a stroke of a pen. COVID, you know, that was a, a once in a lifetime exigency that probably is not what you're talking about, where you have something that, you know, so rare that it takes out half the economy or a third of the economy. Yeah, not at all. I, I don't think you can solve for those kind of black swan effects that are, that are so unlikely to happen, but you can stay out of businesses that are deeply influenced by forces that are just simply aren't in your control. Yeah. In particular, government policy and regulation. I mean, that is a big one, right? <laughs> That's a yeah. big one. That's a big one. That's fascinating. So you got your undergrad. Did you get your MBA and graduate work at Stanford as well? What I did when I graduated is I took a job at McKinsey & Company. Right. And I worked in the energy sector in Texas for a couple of years, but always with the mind that I was going to go back and get my MBA at Stanford because I, I got, at the time, they had a, a program called pre-admit. So they would admit you in your you know, final year in college and you could defer. So I deferred for two years, but I always knew I was going to go back. And McKinsey was a really great boot camp for me. And I feel insecure saying boot camp to a guy who actually went to boot camp. <laughs> I never went to boot camp, but, it, but, but it, it, in one respect, it, it, I think there is a parallel, which is that it made me grow up. 
I remember a lot of my friends, peers from Colgate, did a similar thing, right? They would, and their boot camp was like Morgan Stanley, you know, and I went to Cooper's and Libra and I was uh, in um, Big Eight CPA before I joined the SEALs. Okay. All right. I think I'm the only weirdo who did it that way. Yeah. It does seem a little backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a backwards kind of guy. You know, you're busting your butt. Those are long, long hours and you're seeing a lot of different industries and they put you through the ringer in those two years. I could see that being a real growth hill. Well, they do. And they also had, had a, I mean, it, the firms changed a lot, you know, in the last 40 years. But when I was there, the standard of excellence was extraordinary. The rules around ethics and how you behave was so honorable. And I just got a lot of values there, but I never, ever wanted to stay there and make a career there. And I always wanted to be back in business for myself. So when I went, when I went back to business school at Stanford, I was always towards you know, being in business for myself, which is what I did for many, many, many years before I shifted over to investing and, and teaching at Stanford. And I went back, obviously, at Stanford to teach. So tell us about your entrepreneurial career. Like, What were some of the highs and lows and lessons from that? I had some huge successes and I had some complete flops. First of all, it's maybe a much better investor. It might feel a little tongue in cheek when people say, oh, you know, you learn more from your failures. Well, you do. You learn more from your failures and your successes. And there's actually kind of a cognitive reason for that, which is that when you have a success, you tend to be less introspective on why that happened. Right. You might modestly say you're lucky or think it's all about you. But when you have a failure and you're like really kicked in the jaw, if you're smart, you undergo a very serious sort of debrief on what happened or a post-mortem. And so I think that's one of the reasons why people do learn more from their failures, their successes. I certainly did. So I was CEO of five different companies, one that was a, it continues to be a pretty large thriving nonprofit that operates in, in seven countries. And th these are companies that you were hired or did you start any of them or? No, actually not. Two are effectively startups. One was for the ground up. The other was we bought one teeny, teeny company and then built it from there just for our told. And the other two were companies that I bought. I didn't have any money. That was probably clear since I was working in a slaughterhouse that I pulled a group of investors together to help buy the company. So they put the capital together and then I, I did all the, the sweat equity. And I had the uh, Teamsters reporting to me at one point, or not reporting to me, but I, I had Teamsters and I had the IBEW. So I dealt with unions. A lot of those companies were trucks and very kind of salt of the earth businesses, but one of them was, you know, internet enabled. So I had a little bit of everything. So in that leadership journey, how did you see yourself evolve as a leader? How were you different as a leader at the end of that journey than maybe at the beginning? Stylistically, worldview, the way you dealt with teams? I'll give you a few places that, you know, I felt were really profound changes. One was I was a very insecure leader at the beginning, which I don't think is, is unique, but how I presented that was arrogance because I was afraid of people. I was afraid of my employees. I was afraid of what people thought. I wanted to be liked and so forth. And that manifested itself in a, in a, a really sort of counterproductive way. And over time, I realized that I could sort of let go of that insecurity, that people did not expect me to be perfect, and that also that I could be more myself and I could relate more deeply to my employees, and they appreciated it more. So that was one. The second was, I sort of alluded to this, but I really wanted to be liked, and I didn't understand how destructive that is. Now, of course, I want to be liked by my kids and my wife and all that, but your employees, if you're driven by being liked, then you're going to make bad decisions, which interestingly enough, Mark, is going to make you 
less liked, if you will. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Once I stopped worrying about whether people liked me or not, and instead I said, I'm working with a bunch of professionals here. And what they want me to do is they want me to make really good decisions, even the hard ones, even the unpopular ones. I was actually more liked, if you will. So that was the second big area. The third was a really understanding that a lot of business is not intuitive. And in fact, it's skill-based. And that's, of course, what's led to the book, The Manager's Handbook, where I identified that there were these five skill areas that were universal among good managers. This is a little bit immodest to say because I wrote the book, but I'm really making a point about how clumsy I was as a manager early on. I wish I had had the book that I wrote now in my 60s when I was getting started in my 30s. You know, I went to a really, really great college and a really great MBA program, and nobody told me how to hire. Nobody told me how to give a performance review. Nobody told me how to set and adhere to priorities. So I had to learn all of that on the job. So by the time I kind of retired, if you will, as a CEO, I had learned all of those things the hard way. There's the saying, you know, you can pay attention in class and learn today, or you can let life teach you. Or should I let life teach me a lot of those skills? That's cool. I've, I've actually said the same thing about one of my books, Unbeatable Mind. I wrote it in 2011, but I was like, boy, I sure wish I knew this back in <laughs> 1990. And, you know, they have that uh, question that's sometimes asked, and we sometimes ask guests in class, you know, what would you tell your 30-year-old self today? And it's a little bit what happens when you write a book, right, Mark? Right, exactly. Yeah, you get to look back and be like, man, yeah, the power of, of time and, and just lessons, but you can't shortcut that either. It's more than just the lesson. It's everything else that comes with it, the embodiment of the experiences and the emotional development. We'll get into the, the five things that you, I want to talk about from your book, the execution piece. But like my experience in working with clients is like execution is really, really radically important. That's like the, you know, the doing part. But if you haven't dealt with your traumas and you haven't done some of the emotional work to show up authentically and with respect, like you said, some of the early part of you, you know, same thing with me. I lack so much confidence that it showed up as arrogance or, you know, I was overcompensating for my own uh, flaws. And so I, it wasn't until I started to do my own therapeutic work and shadow work and letting go of the trying to be perfect and, you know, taking off the mask. There's a whole different, a lot of different metaphors I could use. So what do you think is that other piece? Like how important is that from your perspective for an individual to not just work on the execution, but to work on their very being, you know, how they show up? I love that question. By the way, John Steinbeck wrote a line in his book, East of Eden. It was from one character to a character named Caleb. He said, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. I love it. I really strongly embrace what you're saying. And it's one of the reasons why I have a whole chapter on finding an executive coach, because an executive coach is not just about the nuts and bolts of, you know, how do you run a meeting, but it's how are you showing up? And I address head on in the book. You know, if you've got issues about dependency on substance, you've got uh, issues in your personal life with your marriage, things going on in the office, you have to find a coach that you can talk about those things with because you can't put them under the cover. We have a class that's specifically devoted just for, you know, mental illness among entrepreneurs, which is rampant. I think, don't hold me to the stat, Mark, but I think it's five times more prevalent among entrepreneurs than the uh, general community. So I have a, a guest, and he's mentioned in the book, not in this context, but in other contexts, Paul English, who was one of the couple of founders of Kayak.com, the uh, travel site, and his battles with bipolar disorder. And he comes and we talk to the class about not only how you think about your own struggles, 
but also how you uh, help as a manager and a leader with people who are having struggles. You may not have any issues with mental illness, but there's a 100% chance that if you have any decent-sized organization, there are people there that do. Same thing with substance abuse, et cetera. And, and so I know the scope of your question was more, how do you kind of get your own act together? But it also bleeds into these other aspects. And I do think you have to have that kind of largely together before you can lead correctly. So you know how you're showing up. Right. I think it's, we really need to destignify mental illness, right? Because again, it just sounds so awful. Like, oh my God, I'm, I'm mentally ill. Like I'm broken. You know, some of the most brilliant people and creative people are bipolar. The challenge is like that, that brilliance is incredible, but then on the other side of the roller coaster, it's awful for them. And so to have the um, compassion, right, to be able to understand when someone's, you know, where they're in that trough, you know, to help them through that. But it doesn't make them broken, in my opinion. It's just something's, you know, something's off with their chemistry or, or whatnot. And without that, they wouldn't have that genius. I mean, look at what Robin Williams brought to the world. It's just extraordinary, you know, in, in the comedic field. He was a bipolar. And now that, you know, post-COVID, like mental illness is all over the place. You know, I bet you half the population has something that would be categorized in the DSM, right, as a mental illness. Burnout, right? Fatigue, anxiety, depression. I think it's time to destignify that and for leaders, organizational leaders to like bring it right up to the forefront and say, hey, this is not bad. Your job's not on the line here. Let's everybody get healthy. You do a lot for that through your program yeah. and your podcasts and the other the other things that you do. So I mean, you're, you're really helping to get the message out that that can be talked about openly and it should not be stigmatized. And until you're willing to do that, you can't actually deal with that. But there's no but, period. period. In addition, that leaders and managers not only need to think about their own world, but they also need to have the tools in place so they can manage those issues, not if they come up in the workplace, but when they come yeah, up in the when. workplace and not to run away from it, but run into the issue. And there's certain things you can and should do as a leader. Right. I love your recommendation to have executive coaching. I know a lot of organizations are starting to employ like internal executive coaches or bring in organizations. And I hired an executive coach um, in January to work with me because, uh, you know, as you know, when you start a business, sometimes you you find yourself several years later standing on an island going like, ha, I don't have anyone to talk to. <laughs> like, I don't have a board of directors. I know you probably have all that because you're wiser than I am when it comes to that. But so I've, I've had to get really smart in the last couple of years to surround myself with advisors and mentors and now a direct executive coach who like holds that mirror up to me and says, hey, Mark. This is what I see. You had a great podcast a while back on it, specifically the you know the topic of executive coaching and so forth, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. So, what are uh, best practices from your uh, vantage point for either finding a coach or working with a coach or being a coach? I guess the whole thing. Yeah, the book is divided into five skill areas, which were not something I just kind of stared out of the window and thought about. Instead, I went the reverse. I studied really effective leaders that were just great at getting things done. And I looked for commonalities and I found these five things and there were no exceptions, by the way. Yeah, interesting. And one of them was an ability to seek and take advice. Well, if I said, if I were on your podcast right now, Mark, and I said, by the way, if you want to be a good leader, you should be good at seeking and taking advice. Well, that's not very particularly controversial. The, where it gets interesting, but it's also not useful. And I wanted a book that could be used, not could be read. And so I broke down, well, what are the components of seeking and taking advice? And one of them is thinking about getting an executive coach. By the way, you know, when it got, the whole notion of executive coaches, when it kind of got started, which they say that kind of Peter Drucker, it's a half century ago, was kind of the, the first person to be executive coach. 
it's increasingly, it went from that to an executive coach you bring in when the CEO is stumbling to what we have now today, which is executive coaches are definitely not because you're stumbling and definitely not just for the CEO. So that's a huge positive breakthrough. So the book sort of explains what an executive coach does, explains why an executive coach is different than a mentor. And then it's a how-to manual, right? So it's, how do you find an executive coach? What questions should you ask them? What should you be looking for in an executive coach? In fact, at the end of the chapters, you know, it says, you know, 10 questions to ask an executive coach when you're interviewing them, different websites you can go to. And I can't think of anything that would be more applicable to the average manager who's beginning to learn to manage than having an executive coach. It'd be a little bit like, I want to, you know, I want to play for the NFL, but I don't want to have a coach. So a lot of folks are in transition. I get a lot of people coming to our Unbeatable programs. We have a coach certification. It's, it's not executive coaching. It's more like integrated, holistic, more life coaching. But we're, we're kind of heading more into the OD work, so that'll change. But if you are listening, if, if a listener is saying, hey, I'm interested in becoming an executive coach, what would you tell them? Like, what was a good place to start investigating to where would I get the skills and the training? You know, is there, are there best practices or is there a particular program that you really like to become an executive coach? So the first thing is being an executive coach, which is one of the things that differentiates an executive coach from a mentor, is an executive coach is not someone who brings their several decades of life experience and kind of sits back and offers wisdom. Being a good executive coach, as you know, from what you do in your own program, is being able to run a process in a certain way to try to bring out the best of that person's talent. That is a process that in most cases needs to be taught. Few people might just figure it out intuitively. And in the book, I mentioned a number of schools and programs where you know the book's written from the context of a client who would be signing up for an executive coach. But if you're interested in being an executive coach, those are listed right in the book. As well as I think this important differentiation between what is an executive coach versus what is a mentor or an advisor. And they're very different. Yeah, they are. I agree with that. Do you think it's important, uh, just to put a pin in this conversation, that the ICF kind of certification to go with an executive coach? And I mean, most coaches that I've seen who really are trying to do as a career, they kind of want that. I don't know if that's important from your perspective or in that high-end executive world. I never had an executive coach. So this was one of those great chapters where it's purely my curation of the best practices of other people, which included coaches. And pretty much across the board, I heard very good things about that certification, that program. And there's another element to it too, which is continuing education. Happy to have Z-Biotics as a sponsor of The Mark Divine Show. We all train hard, take care of our bodies, try to get a great night's sleep. But speaking for myself, I still enjoy having a glass of wine every once in a while. But I tell you what, I don't like feeling foggy the next day. So I'm super stoked to find Z-Biotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol is the answer that I've been looking for. It's a pre-alcohol probiotic drink. It's the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by PhDs to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's that byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for the rough next day. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic produces an enzyme to break down that byproduct. Just remember to make Zbiotics pre-alcohol your first drink of the night. Then drink responsibly, and you'll feel great the next day. Every time I have a prebiotics pre-alcohol drink, I notice a difference the next day. Even after a night out, I can confidently plan on cranking out my training the next morning without a problem. This holiday season, give your friends and family a gift they will actually want 
and use and benefit from with ZBiotics. Go to zbiotics.com slash divine to get 15% off your first order when you use divine at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund you. No questions asked. Remember, it's zbiotics.com slash divine. Use the code divine at checkout for 15% off. ZBiotics spelled Z-B-I-O-T-I-C-S. Thank you, ZBiotics, for sponsoring this episode of The Mark Divine Show and for ensuring our good times. It's estimated that over half a million veterans return home from combat suffering with post-traumatic stress. Fewer than half of the soldiers who report symptoms of combat-related PTS receive the care that they need. Many soldiers that begin treatment will walk away before its completion. I believe they need an integrated approach to treatment. That's why I created the Veteran Integration Program. If you want to learn more, please visit CourageFoundationUSA.org. That's CourageFoundationUSA.org. Yeah, the international ICF is the International Coaching Federation. I want to like double click. You mentioned three, the three sixty report or review, which came out of the military. I got to tell you, the first three sixty that was administered on me, I got kicked in the jimmy. Like, <laughs> I was like, "Holy crap!" They actually perceived that me that way. Like, I I had no idea, and it led to a complete transformation of how I lead. And I still think a lot of people resist these like they they kind of feel like they get forced into them sometimes but man what a valuable tool and this is something that normally a, a good executive coach would either facilitate or or request that that get done yeah earlier in our conversation mark where you were asking about my own evolution and i only did one thing that could even remotely be qualified as a 360 and that was early in my career and that's where i got feedback on how i was sort of presenting myself I mean, I didn't walk into the office saying, oh, David, you know, you're insecure. Have a good day. But it was there. I was feeling that. And that's where I realized that it, how it was presented as it was being presented as arrogance and aloofness. And by the way, the phrase, you know, ice water in your veins, I got, you know, kind of kicked pretty hard as well. However, since that time, the practice of 360s has really evolved and gotten much more sophisticated and much less painful. You don't really have to be you know, have that jolt. It's not about shock therapy. Yeah. The presentation isn't really important and <laughs> you've got to have the skill to present it properly. Yes. So for example, the best 360 processes are not ones where you go online and you download an app and everybody puts in whatever they want. And maybe you've got, you know, you Google the 200 best 360 questions to ask, and then you give that information to people. Uh, that uncurated information is generally not very useful. You can lose good people. And in the book, I talk about one in particular. And it can be very painful and destructive to the 360 process. And especially now, where we've got this world where people will go online and they'll say stuff they would never say to somebody face to face. The 360 is not kind of an anonymous chat group. And what I describe is, first of all, how you formulate those few questions, because you really want to focus on a few questions. Let's say, for example, that you and I have a company that where we're delivering something. And on-time delivery is a very important component of it. So a good 360 program is, to what extent does Mark contribute to our goal of 27 minutes on-time delivery? That's a good 360. You're going to get really valuable information from that. So crafting your 360 questions around what the company's goals and ambitions are is really critical. Otherwise, you're going to get these kind of like 10,000-foot answers. 
Second thing is that the manager or, you know, you alluded to, Mark, where you can have a coach do this, but let's say it's the person's manager. They curate that information and they take all this input, they repackage it in a way that they look for common themes and common themes that they think the person should be working with. And then they give that feedback to the person say, okay, Mark, here are some general themes that we got. One is that it seems like you're very aspirational about the on-time delivery, but because you're not organized during the day, da 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 And we heard that over and over again from drivers. Okay, now we're starting to go into this 360 is not about judging you, but it's about helping you to become a better performer. Uh, so that notion of sort of packaging and curation. And then I talk a little bit in the book about how when you're doing a 360 review, if the company doesn't have them yet, you start by doing a 360 review on just yourself. You got to be patient. And then you model to the your staff how you deal with the feedback. So you got the feedback. It might not have even been curated. You're going to have to put up with that or you can use a coach. But then you go through very simple steps. I would say, this is what I heard. These are the common themes that I heard. This is what I'm going to work on right away. This is what I want to work on, but I'm not going to be able to work on it until fill in the blank. And this is where I'm not going to change. And let me explain why. And I know you're a big fan of this, having these frameworks and processes in place. So you're not just out winging it, make it really very easy for you to execute well. Right. Let's pan out and just look at your uh, book, The Manager's Handbook. What, what are the five key areas? I know we've already been talking a lot about coaching and development. What are the five key areas? And then let's like pull out a highlighter too. Yeah. So the first one is the ability to build a team. I refer to it as a commitment to building a team. It's, I like it because we talked about this a little bit earlier in our conversation. If I were teaching at Stanford, or I do teach at Stanford, what I teach at Stanford, if I said to my students, hey, you need to have a commitment to building a team, everybody would be like, oh, nod, but they'd say, I paid tuition for this. <laughs> then I talk about seven particular steps that you go through in terms of building a team. And it, it, it starts with hiring, but then the very next chapter goes into how you onboard. And the next chapter on that is how you get feedback. The next one is being a fanatical custodian of your time. What I observed is that the best leaders recognize they don't have any more time than you and I do, Mark, but some people have hundreds of thousands of employees working for them. So how do they do that? And, and, and again, it's not, hey, be careful with your time, but what are very specific things that people do that don't require you to go to a, a three-week seminar or a weekend seminar, don't require you to completely re-engineer your, your day that allow you to be a good custodian of your time? I think others would be interested as well, but like, what was the top two or three things that the people you studied did to radically preserve their time to say no to things that they didn't need to do or shouldn't be doing. The foundation of this was a study done at Harvard where they looked at 27 high-performing CEOs. And if you can imagine this, Mark, they documented how they behaved in 15-minute increments, accumulating literally 60,000 hours of data. <laughs> wow. What they saw is that while each of these 27 high-performing CEOs may have done a few, you know, no two didn't manage their day exactly the same. There were some clear common themes. For example, they always plan out their day. Sounds simple. I plan out my day every single day, but then nobody wants to fill out a, you know, seven page questionnaire where they're filling out their day. My day planner takes 90 seconds. I described that one in the book by way of example. A second one is how they manage their time. So I wanted to write a book that people could implement the next day and could say, wow, I could do that. So one example would be take your 30-minute meetings and cut them down to 20 minutes, which you can do, and take your hour-long meetings and cut them down to 40 minutes. By the way, when I went back and looked at my own calendar and I said, okay, what if I had done that over the last month? It was an extra 70 minutes per day of time. That was actually 
really powerful because it was so easy to do. And also, if you schedule a meeting from one o'clock to one twenty, people assume that there's a reason for it and they know you got to get to business. So we actually packed a lot of information in there and the, and the meetings ended at one twenty. How do you determine which meetings can go into, fit into 20 minutes and which ones need 40? Well, we do that anyway, right? We set hour-long meetings and half-hour-long meetings. It's very hard to get a 60-minute slot on my calendar. I'm going to implement this one tomorrow. You just improved my life. Thank you very much. So I saved you 70 minutes a day, which-, which Send me an invoice. <laughs> which is, it's big, right? It's huge. So I'll give you an interesting statistic. Before the internet, the typical executive had about a thousand pieces of communication per year. Okay, pre-COVID, which is when this study was done, so it's even worse now, it went from 1,000 to 30,000 pieces of communication, and it's ever increasing. The irony is that most of these things were supposed to make us more efficient. Oh, we'll do email. That'll make us more efficient, and we're going to have collaboration tools. That'll make us more efficient. All it really did is it made it easier for people to waste our time. Right. And so in the book, I've got a chapter on the digital disaster, what I call it, and marking off these 27 CEOs, how you manage this digital input or these 30,000 plus pieces of communication in a way that they don't consume your time. I mean, we all have experienced those days where you go home and you think, all I did was respond to email. <laughs> that's all I did all day long. That's, did. that's not where you add value. Wow, that's cool. That is very simple and powerful. So we had, you know, building a team, and then being a, a fanatical custodian of time, we talked about willingness to seek and take advice when we were talking about executive coaches, then setting and adhering to priorities. And then the last one was the obsession with quality, which by the way, was, you know, that was, was the one that I would not have predicted, but it was universally true. And I hope that it's obvious, well, but not be obvious because it wasn't obvious to me. These all go together. Okay. So here's the story I want to tell you. Michael Porter was a pretty famous professor at, at Harvard. He had helped me and coached me with some of the writing and read most of the book. We were kind of done or I was done and I was in his kitchen and I said, here, I wrote the introduction of the book. I'd like you to read it. So he reads the introduction. He gets done. He's a very, very blunt, direct guy. And he, he said, this is all wrong. I'm like, oh my God, I thought I had to rewrite the book. And he, what he ended up telling me is he, he said, you're thinking about this all wrong. You're thinking about it as if you've laid out sort of 35 things that somebody can do to be a more effective manager. And then people can kind of pick and choose which ones they want to do. Like it's a menu option. And he said, that's not how it works. He said, what you've done, this was very nice of him to say this. He said, what you've done is you've created, in his words, he said, a unifying theory of execution. This is the guy who created the unified theory on strategy. So I was quite flattered that he said that. But he talked about how they, how they go so well together. And so we've been talking about time management. The fourth part of the book is about adhering to priorities. And you can't adhere to priorities if you haven't hired the right people and if everybody's not managing their time well. And so it goes. And so he was the one who really unlocked for me that you don't get to pick and choose. You kind of got to do it all if you really want to transform your organization, even the ones you don't like to do. I'm sure that uh, you know many, many times in your, in your career, because of the arc of your career, in order to succeed, you had to do some things that were not fun at all. <laughs> Still doing some. <laughs> right? But you can't pick and choose. Okay, I'll pick a simple example. When you're interviewing, the easiest thing to do is to glance at the resume and then go in there and, and effectively just visit with the person for an hour and decide whether you like them or not and whether you click or not. That's a miserable way to hire. The right way to hire requires hard work, but you have a huge payoff because your, your hit rate on hiring the right people is so much higher. 
Same thing with running a meeting. You and I could rock into a meeting and I could wing it, or I could take six or seven minutes and prepare for the meeting. It's a little bit more work, but that's the difference between what Jeff Bezos did and all of the carnage around the internet with people who tried to do exactly the same thing as Jeff Bezos, except they got slaughtered. Right. I see how all these tie together in a process. I've got a small organization. I can see how, I mean, this is challenging to scale execution excellence. It's easier, I've often said this like in the SEAL teams, it's easier to form a team from scratch than it is to change a team that's been operating for years. I think that's true. If someone's listening and is like, man, I love these ideas. We haven't really talked about the quality one, but like they all make sense. But my organization, the culture is just stuck in a rut. And we know from Harvard, Keegan's work that you know, organizations have an immunity to change. So how do you get this implemented? And is there any kind of secret sauce to that? There is. It, 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 I broke it into 18, effectively 18 months. If you read this book and you go, okay, wow, I, like, I don't necessarily agree with every word in there, but boy, if my organization ran like this, it'd be so much better than we have today. And then you bought 10 copies and gave it to your managers and say, let's all read this and let's all do this. You're guaranteed to fail. And by the way, I'm not defining failure as no improvement. You'll absolutely improve. Your meetings will get a little bit better. Your hiring will be better, but you won't transform your organization. If you want to transform your organization after your team reads the book, then you say, I think we all have a lot of energy around this onboarding issue because we're losing a lot of people in the first 100 days. So let's start focusing on the onboarding chapter. You get everybody signed up and you work on that. And then when that's done, you go to the next one. And when that's one, you go to the next one. And so you do it in a serial fashion. And if it takes you five months to get your onboarding process in place, that's fine. But if you try to do everything in parallel, you're most certainly going to fail. People are going to get discouraged. In my investment fund, it's a small organization as well in terms of number of people, probably very similar to yours, Mark. You know, we said, well, we're going to cut our meetings down to 40 minutes. We have these hour-long meetings. Well, it took about three weeks for everybody to realize that stop sending the hour-long calendar invites, <laughs> the 40-minute invites, right? So- you know, implementation does take a little bit of time. And then there's a chapter on how to run an effective meeting. And the reason why you want to run an effective meeting is you don't want to waste people's time and you want to make better decisions. But reprogramming how you behave at a meeting takes a little bit of time. So then you say, well, let's, let's all work on how we run meetings. And then you do that and you keep knocking these off one at a time. But the, the, the beauty is you don't have to go back and do it again. Because you just talked about Keegan and how organizations resist change. Well, once you embed this, people don't want to go backwards. So I'm on the board of 12 companies now, and we've been really fanatical about how to run board meetings, which is very similar to how you would run a you know any kind of management meeting. Nowhere have I seen that once people kind of got in the habits and practices, they wanted to go back to the old way. They know the old way, you know, it takes you you know, three hours to do an hour's worth of work. Well, that's not any good. I mean, high performers don't want to be in that environment. And second, you're making better decisions. So it's more fun. You're making better decisions. You're using less time. Nobody wants to go backwards. You know, knock it off one piece at a time. Yeah, it takes discipline. But as my friend Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL says, discipline equals freedom, <laughs> right? On the other side of disciplining yourself to have those shorter meetings and to come prepared and to be authentic is freedom. And also that, you know, that comes with that freedom is, you know, having very clear frameworks on how to do things. So for example, when you give feedback, I could say, well, Mark, when you and I give feedback, let's say that we work together, when you and I give feedback, we should be really direct with people and we'd all nod and say, yeah, we should do that. And we should be more fluid with our feedback and we'd nod. And then we'd go back and do exactly the same thing we did we were doing before, or maybe a modest improvement. 
So I break it down and said, when you're talking to an employee, giving them feedback, both positive and negative feedback or developmental feedback, do it in these in this six-part framework. And you might hear that and you say, oh, I don't know, that seems like hard to do. It's actually way easier. It just becomes paint by numbers. And after you do it about 10 times, you don't need to refer back to it because you can't imagine doing it any other way because it's just easier. Oh, that's awesome. We're coming to the, the end here. Um, we'll wrap up pretty soon. But um, talk about that last section a little bit about quality. Like how do we... What's that about? I mean, we all think we want quality, but usually a lot of times it gets kind of like missed or ignored. Well, I made it the last chapter because in a lot of ways it was my favorite chapter or my favorite part of the book. And partly it just surprised me. I didn't expect that to happen. I didn't expect that to be one of the five skill areas. And secondly, because I just love the fanaticism that people had about quality. So here was the first kind of epiphany that I had. People like... Steve Jobs, for example, who, you know, we think about him in terms of quality and so forth. These great leaders did not think about quality as a form of ethic or do right by the customer or, or anything like that. It was about making more money. It was about beating your competition. And what they realized is that if you're, let me ask you this, which would you fear more? A competitor that had a darn good product and an awesome sales and marketing team or an awesome product and a darn good sales and marketing team. Of course, the latter, right? Yeah, for sure. The point is we all know what a competitive weapon high quality is. It allows you, first of all, pricing power. And if you increase your price, that goes straight to the bottom line. So pricing power. Second is we know from data and our own just common sense is that it's harder to bring in a new customer than keep a customer. Well, the only reason you keep a customer is you're delivering a quality product. So it closes the back door. So it drives sales. The second way it drives sales is it brings in more customers because word of mouth and, and how people learn where they want to do business with is even more fluid down on the internet because you can type in anything and find out the best place to buy a lawnmower or the best consulting company out there. So it drives sales. And the third is it makes it easier for you to recruit and retain the best people because the best people want to work for a company that has a high quality product. That's why it's you know one of the five components in the book. The recurring theme is, okay, fine, David, but like, how do I do it? And so I examined how people who deliver high quality products do it. And one is that they are really good at understanding where they stand in the marketplace. So there's a thing called the Lake Wobegon effect. Do you ever listen to Garrison Keillor? Oh, yeah. He used to love that guy. He got canceled, unfortunately. But <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. But he he had a, he had a good run there. He did. And he started this the show you might remember where he says in Lake Wilbegon where all the children are above average. Well, of course that can't be. Half have to be above average. Half have to be below average. There was actually an, an interesting study where they asked drivers, American drivers, and ninety percent of American drivers said they were above average. <laughs> This is the best part about it, Mark. They ended up coining that the Lake Wobegon effect. So Garrison Keillor will, even though he got canceled on NPR, he will live in infamy in the, in the neurology or neuroscience. So that's all sounds like a quaint little story. But Bain did this uh, study and they surveyed uh, CEOs and 80% of the people surveyed said that they offered a superior customer experience. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Then they went and looked at what the customers thought. Only 8% of the customers agreed. What a disparity. Wow. Huge disparity. So the book talks about how the really best companies and best leaders identify what, how their customers are identifying quality or, or what they look for quality, 
how you identify it, how you measure it, how you propagate that across the organization. And again, it's very, very hands-on. It is not, quality is not about a poster in the lunchroom or not about a speech that you give once a year or what's in your airport. Quality is actually about doing nuts and bolts things in the same way of running a meeting or hiring well or onboarding well. The same thing as those tools that people use for quality. It was probably the most endearing chapter when I wrote it because I really got into how well these people that are so focused on getting things done, how much they apply quality as a business weapon. I believe it. My honor man certificate from SEAL training said um, the act of doing ordinary things extraordinarily well is uncommon, something like that. I was like, that's really cool. So that's what quality is, to do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. Fantastic. So the book is out. Where can people learn more about you, your work? You know, Do you have ways for people to connect with you? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place that I try to post information material that I think might be useful to people. The book's done well. It hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, hit the USA Today bestseller list. So it's getting out there. And I only say that because I wrote the book to try to help transform organizations. It was not a victory lap late in my career on how I did things. I really wanted to help people become better managers. And it goes back, if we could just go full circle, it goes back to me growing up in rural Colorado. And I wanted to be in situations where you know, basic blocking and tackling and execution that I had control over was going to determine whether I was successful or not. Terrific. Well, well done. Thanks for that contribution. I'm going to go buy a copy for my team. Fantastic. <laughs> and start saving some time, that's for sure. Thank you so much for your time, David. I really appreciate it. It's been a really cool conversation. Not at all, Mark. I enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. All right. Take care now. Yeah. That was a fascinating conversation with David Dawson. Thanks so much for your time today. I loved the discussion about your book and learning how to focus and make better decisions and build teams and to lead by becoming an excellent manager. Really cool stuff. One of my most powerful takeaways is to cut my meetings to one hour meetings to 40 minutes and my half hour meetings to 20 minutes, which will save me a significant amount of time every day. Show notes are up on our website at markdevine.com. YouTube is on our YouTube channel. And uh, if you want to reach me on social media, on Twitter X, I'm at Mark Devine. And on Instagram or Facebook, I'm at Real Mark Devine. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you're not on my newsletter distribution list, go to markdevine.com to subscribe. Divine Inspiration will come to you every Tuesday morning where I share my recent blog, uh, show notes from the week's podcast, a book I'm reading, some other interesting things that come across, and a practice, a weekly practice for you to try out. Divine Inspiration. Check it out, subscribe, and share it, please. Shout out to my incredible team, Catherine Devine and Jason Sanderson, Jeff Haskell, who will produce the podcast and the newsletter and bring this great content to you every week. Reviews and ratings are very helpful, so if you haven't done so, please consider rating or reviewing it wherever you listen. It helps us stay at the top of the ranking, stay relevant, helps other people find it. So I appreciate that very much. Thanks very much for being part of the change you want to see in the world. We can do that now at scale with technologies like this podcast. But uh, it all starts with us. It's our world. So if we want things to change around us, you got to change from the inside out. So keep doing the work. Till next time, hoo-yah. See you soon. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 